everyone. Welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Josh Rasmussen. We're going to be talking about the argument from arbitrary limits. So Josh, welcome. How are you today? Thank you. Appreciate you having me with you. Yeah, I'm super pumped. And we're just going to be exploring this argument that Josh, among other people, has developed and just looking at like what it is and objections and things like that. So Josh, maybe start off. Do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what got you interested in thinking about like an argument like this? Yeah, so I'm Josh Rasmussen. I'm a philosopher. I teach at Azusa Pacific University. And one of my areas of interest ever since being at Notre Dame and, and really going deep into the areas of philosophy that I work in is, is just to understand kind of the, the foundational level of existence. Like what is the nature of existence at the, at the most foundational level? And this got me thinking about this kind of argument from arbitrary limits. And I continue to think about it. I was actually telling you by email that that I've continued to um, be thinking about the argument and maybe discovering some new angles to it, because the argument for me is kind of like a tool for investigating like what could be ultimate. Um, I, I have a little bit of reality here to sort of mm -hmm. illustrate things. And one thing that seems true to me is that this bit of reality um, is not ultimate. And by ultimate, I mean that there's no further cause or explanation of its existence. Because actually, this bit of reality came from something else. Um, but then it's like, but okay, if this bit of reality came from something else, what kind of reality could be ultimate if there's an ultimate reality? And that's what really gave birth to this argument from arbitrary limits, is a device for carving away some theories of the nature of fundamental reality, and then opening up maybe a window to seeing a positive description of what reality could be most fundamentally. So that's basically the goal, the reason that I got into the argument. Hmm. Yeah, super helpful. So did you get this argument maybe from like reading someone, Josh, like ideas from it? Or is it something maybe you think more you just kind of like came into your head one day? I'm just curious, like maybe like the origin of like your thoughts on this idea? Sort of a combination. You know, I think that everybody kind of has ways of influencing others. Uh, maybe even in indirect ways. Um, mm -hmm. There's a certain form of this idea I got from Robert Coons. He talks about a principle whereby we can investigate uh, whether the fundamental necessary reality, if there is a necessary reality, would have particular um, quantitative features. And we'll talk more about this, but like maybe it has four sides or six sides. You know, those are quantitative features. Um, and so I did see it in his work. I also saw it in Dun Scotus's work as well, and a few other philosophers. Um, and then also just independently, I was just thinking myself about it. And I came up with this kind of principle in my mind, this principle of irrelevant differences. This is a principle by which the um, fundamental reality would have to vary or differ from non-fundamental things in a way that's relevant to account for it being fundamental versus non-fundamental. And I think this sort of principle of, well, the principle of irrelevant differences would be if the, if the difference is not relevant, then it should be in the same boat. It should be caused or explained. Um, but if it but if it's going to be unexplained, that's got to have a relevant difference. And I think this actually underwrites some of Robert Kuhn's work here because Robert Kuhn's talks about a principle of slight differences. So he says that, um, you know, if, if having a triangular shape is going to have a further cause or explanation, then having, you know, a square shape will have a further cause or explanation because the difference between three and four is sort of a slight difference. And then, and I would say, yeah, and the reason why a slight difference is not enough is because it's not a relevant difference. <laughs> you need a relevant difference to explain why the one shape could be ultimate, uh, but not the other shape, you know? So that, that's why it's like, no matter how this thing is shaped, 
it seems like whatever its particular shape is, is going to have some further explanation to explain, you know, that shape rather than a different shape. Yeah, it's super helpful. So thanks, Josh. So maybe it'd be helpful at this point to kind of like dive into like what is exactly the argument that you're going to bring forth. So maybe you want to talk about like yeah. what is the argument from arbitrary limits, Josh? Yeah, good. So there's different versions of the argument. Um, kind of a simple seed version would be something like this. Um, any kind of limit has some further explanation. Fundamental reality, if there is a fundamental reality, and we can come back to that if, um, does not have a further explanation because it's fundamental. Therefore, fundamental reality doesn't have any limits. Um, mm -hmm. That might be one sort of way of setting it up. Um, or if it has limits, those limits won't be fundamental features of fundamental reality. Um, yeah. Because its its fundamental features have no further explanation. So anything that's non-fundamental will have a further explanation. That's kind mm -hmm. of the idea. And, and we could say that's a simple seed form of the argument. And then we could think about ways to extend the implications of that argument to see, okay, well... If fundamental reality doesn't, if it doesn't have fundamental limits, what kind of a reality could that be? And mm -hmm. I have an extended argument that goes from non-arbitrarily limited to supreme. Um, mm -hmm. The argument, the outline of the argument would be anything that um, doesn't have a supreme nature would have some fundamental or arbitrary limit. Mm. Um, but fundamental reality doesn't have arbitrary limits. Therefore, fundamental reality would have a supreme nature. That would be the basic outline. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. So thanks, Josh. Maybe it'd be helpful then to like kind of look at the different like premises and like the simplified version of the argument yes. they brought forth. So you hinted a little bit like having the little like blob or whatever's in your hand. I still don't yeah. really know what it was. Um, yeah. Like Play suggesting that like limited things. Yeah. <laughs> so you like, why would you think like, why do you think limited things would have like some sort of like further explanation for their existence? Yeah, so good. This is part of that uh, principle of irrelevant differences. So Here's a kind of a way that I think about it. Here, here's another little bit of reality that I found. And it has a certain number of sides. And um, it's having that number of sides has some cause or explanation. Uh, this bit of reality is not the foundational reality. But now I could ask you, like, how, how do you know that? How do you know this isn't the foundational reality? And you might give two kinds of arguments for this. Um, one is you might think that the kinds of things we witness in the effects couldn't be produced by this. Like this is the wrong kind of thing to produce everything else. Okay, that, that's one mm -hmm. kind of reason. Another kind of reason has to do with the nature of the cause itself. You might think this is the wrong kind of thing to be uncaused and unexplained. And why is that? Well, because going back to the principle of irrelevant differences, it doesn't differ from things in our experience that are known to have a cause or explanation. Things that we witness um, even in our own consciousness, our own thoughts coming from other states. And if this thing doesn't differ in a relevant way, then that would be a reason to think that this thing is not ultimate. It actually has some cause or explanation. Now, what happens if we change the number of sides? So, you know, this has a certain number of sides. Let's say that we change the number of sides, so it has three sides. Would that be a relevant change going from this number to the number three? And my thought is that as a kind of modest principle, other things being equal, we have reason to expect an explanation uh, unless we have some positive reason to think that this thing is an exception to the rule. So in other words, mm. we have reason to think that if it has this number of sides, there should be an explanation of it having that number of sides. Unless we have some reason to think that that number is special. That's the kind of number that would stop the explanatory chain. And if that's right, then on this kind of modest formulation of this principle of explanation, explain things as far as you can, unless you have some reason to make an exception, that's going to motivate the 
principle, the premise and the argument from arbitrary limits, because the idea is that for any limit you encounter, there's some reason to expect that it has some explanation. Differences from one limit between one limit and another don't seem to be relevant differences to this call for an explanation. So mm. that's, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I was going to say, I really like your explanation, Josh, because I think about it like we were, we, we look at like limited things and like we have an explanation. It's like, for example, like if my cookies are stolen, then I would ex expect that there'd be some sort of like explanation for like, why are they stolen? Why would yeah, it be right. like three? Was it like my, my little sister or something like that? Mm -hmm. um, so I like that because it seems like intuitive. And if you follow it all the way through, it seems like it's going to like be a good like starter for this argument um, is looking at like, well, we do really do expect the limited things have explanations, at least in our general experience. Yes. Yeah. There's an expectation of an explanation and, you know, maybe, Somebody has some reason to think that, you know what, that cube over there, there could not be an explanation of that cube. That cube mm -hmm. is special. And so then then if you have that reason to make an exception, then that reason can help you to stop that explanatory chain. But this is where that principle of irrelevant differences comes in, because it seems to me that mere differences in shape and size um, and any kind of quantity doesn't seem to me to provide that relevant difference. And so that's why I would expect an explanation of any any kind of limit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe we could talk about like the second premise then, Josh, which I mean, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly, but it's like looking at the idea that like, well, then if limits have explanations, then like the fundamental like nature of reality where there yeah. is no further explanation, it'd be unlimited. Am I getting that right? Yeah, you got it. Yeah, that's right. Um, and now in that second premise, I'm kind of tucking in the conclusion of a, another argument. So may, maybe I could just sort of set, set it up this way. Um, the argument from arbitrary limits, you could think of that as a device that can help you to investigate fundamental the fundamental nature of reality, if there is a fundamental uh, nature of reality, if there is a fundamental reality, right? But then why think there is a fundamental reality? And kind of just backing up a little bit more, one, one of the things that I, I think about is this sort of general puzzle of how there can be any reality at all. So people who know my work, they're familiar with this kind of puzzle. And the puzzle has to do with the observation that Whatever reality is, okay, this is a bit of reality, but if you could just imagine that this is just all of reality for a moment, imagine this, this is everything. Maybe if you zoomed out of our universe, you see that actually we're in a multiverse and you zoom all the way out and all the universes together look something like this. This is, this is the multiverse this is what it looks like when you're zoomed out. You might wonder, okay, well, why is there this reality at all? And we're talking about all space, all time, everything, right? Well, reality in total doesn't have anything beyond it that explains it because reality in total includes all of it. So in that sense, you could think of reality in total as self-sufficient. It has within it everything and there's nothing that reality in total depends on or that caused it. And to me, this invites a, a deep puzzle, which is how can a reality be self-sufficient? How could there be any reality that doesn't depend on any further cause or explanation? So part of the solution that I offer is that if reality in total has a kind of foundational layer, um, you know, maybe to bring back this prop, if this is kind of an arbitrary bit of reality and the arbitrary bit of reality is explained ultimately in terms of some kind of foundational layer of reality. And, and, and I want to leave open the nature of the foundational layer. I mean, maybe the foundational layer of reality is in some way the whole of reality. Some people have suggested that the whole of reality could be prior to its parts, the whole explains the parts, but the whole is unexplained. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I want to leave that open, you know, or maybe the foundational layer of reality is some kind of uh, part within the total of reality. It's not the whole, it's some part, but it's a special part. But either way, either way, it's foundational in the sense that it 
doesn't depend on anything else. Um, it's sort of the ultimate ground layer of reality. And so if that's right, well, then we have uh, within our reality, some kind of special reality that's unlike the things that have further causes and explanations. This foundational reality has no further cause or explanation. And so then that leads us to that second premise where um, the, well, I forget how I put it exactly, but the idea is that there is a foundational reality. If there is that foundational reality, it's not going to have arbitrary limits and boundaries and configurations that call for further explanation because it has no further explanation. It's the ultimate. So that, mm -hmm. that's why, I mean, just to illustrate this, I mean, let's say that we fold this up into a certain kind of shape like this. Even as I'm pressing this to put it into a shape, to a shape, I'm causing it to take that shape. Or even if it caused itself to take that shape, still that shape is being caused. It's not a fundamental feature of fundamental reality. So, I mean, this is a reason, and I have to say that here I feel pretty confident. I mean, there's some things I'm not so sure about they're kind of at the edge of my thinking, but here I feel pretty confident that the fundamental feature of fundamental reality is does does not have this shape. You know, if, if you actually zoomed mm -hmm. down, you saw the, the the multiverse, and this was the multiverse. Th this wouldn't be the fundamental uh, characterization of fundamental reality again, because any particular shape I think would call for further explanation. So that's how I would motivate that second premise. That's helpful, Josh, because it seems like to me, like if we're going to accept like the first premise where like limited things have explanations, yes. like we'd have to follow it all the way through um, and saying like, well, eventually like we're going to get to a foundation which doesn't have limits because limits That's like it. require further explanations. Um, unless you want to say like maybe it's like brood or something, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, a little bit here looking at objections. So maybe it'd be helpful at this point, Josh, to talk about how we get from like there being like an unlimited foundation or necessary thing to it being like supreme, which is something yeah. you were handing out earlier. Yeah. Okay. So first, I, I want to avoid um, being overly triumphal about this argument. And I was actually just thinking about the argument again last night and this morning and just kind of turning over the pieces and maybe distinguishing pieces that are clear in my own mind from things that are um, maybe less clear. And I wrote down some notes. I, I was thinking that kind of just slowing things down and thinking about maybe what's the most clear. I was thinking about some attributes of the fundamental attributes. So just to bring this back up, let's just say that, um, let's say that this bit of reality represents dependent realities. Uh, and then let's say that this foundational reality, whatever it is, just represents the non-dependent independent foundation. And then let's say that doesn't have any particular arbitrary limits in its fundamental description. And so now you're wondering, okay, well, why think that if it doesn't have arbitrary limits in its funnel, fundamental description, that it would be supreme? Now, to even answer that question, I want to take a little bit of time to think about, like, what would it even mean to be supreme? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, I wrote this down in my notes, um, just kind of taking a step back and thinking about its foundational attributes, I wrote down four attributes of its foundational attributes. And I think it'd be mm -hmm. worth the kind of uh, us just kind of stepping through those four, because yeah. I think stepping through those four will even help me to clarify a way of understanding what it means to be supreme. So um, so here, here's our reality, and it has some attributes. But let's say that some of its attributes are fundamental attributes, so they don't have any further cause or explanation. And let's just take all of its fundamental attributes, and let's let N, for nature, um, be the name of the total of all of its fundamental attributes. Okay. So now the question is, um, what attributes are included in N? Okay. So what mm -hmm. attributes are included in the fundamental nature 
of the fundamental reality? That's our question. And so I have four attributes of the attributes in N that I want to just kind of point to, and maybe you can talk back with me about some of these. Yeah. So the first um, attribute of the attributes is that these attributes are going to be what I call qualitative as opposed to quantitative. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that, this goes back to that principle of, um, uh, well, slight differences rooted in the principle of irrelevant differences. So to illustrate, um, if the if if one of the attributes in um, in n were let's say being a triangle, then that triangularity, that number three that shows up in you know that's a quantitative um, that's a quantitative attribute. And then I wonder, okay, well, why is it triangular rather than square? Um, it seems like that's not a relevant difference. And so to avoid this problem of irrelevant differences. I say that, well, it's just, it's not a quantitative property at all. It's a qualitative. So an example of a qualitative property would be, um, or maybe we could say categorical property, like being independent or um, being something. Okay. Those don't have quantities built into them. Um, being, being the ground of all else, being foundational. Okay. It could have those attributes. Maybe some of those attributes are even included in N, um, but it wouldn't have a quantitative at, um, attribute. So that's the first thing is qualitative. The second attribute of the attributes in N of the fundamental nature would be that it's, um, we already mentioned this, it wouldn't be um, limited. Um, it wouldn't be limited. And that's because think, you know, one question you might ask me, well, what do I mean by a limit? One, one way of defining a limit would be it's a quantitative attribute that's not maximal. Um, so maybe there are some quantitative attributes that are maximal. Um, so it's as high as could be. But a quantitative limit that's not maximal, I think that sort of calls for an explanation of like, well, why does it have that quantity rather than more or less? Mm -hmm. So sort of for the same reason that it's not um, quantitative, it wouldn't then be limited in that sense, in the sense of being a quantitative attribute that's not maximal. I mean, obviously, if it's not a quantitative attribute, it's not a quantitative attribute that's not maximal. That just follows by definition. So those two are kind of related. Um, and then the second two have to do with the positivity of the attributes. So I was talking about this with my wife, Rachel, and she reminded me that the word positive is kind of ambiguous. One way of thinking of the word positive is in terms of just uh, logical positivity, like it doesn't include a negation. So like mm -hmm. being snow is positive, but being not snow, the not in there um, is negative because it has the not. Okay. So that's mm -hmm. a kind of logical positivity. My thought is that if it had um, a neg negation in there, like not being a unicorn, that's going to be grounded in terms of something that it is. Like the reason mm -hmm. that it's not a unicorn is because it is something that precludes being a unicorn. So if that's right, then the fundamental nature, which isn't grounded in anything, is not going to, going to include these logical negations. Um, it's going to be just purely positive, logically positive. And then here's the fourth one. This is going to be related to an argument for it's having a supreme nature is uh, I, I, I think that it would have a positive aspect in the sense of value. So you call this axiological positivity. And, and I was thinking about this again and trying to get it very, very clear in my mind. There's different ways of unpacking this, but maybe at the general level, we could think of it this way. We could think that um, if if this foundational reality um, didn't have any positive aspects at all at its fundamental layer, 
then it would be an insufficient basis for other po positive aspects it has. And by positive, I mean some kind of value in telling quality. So for example, it seems to me that it has value in virtue of having this ability to be a ground of everything else. And the ability to being a ground of everything else is, is a kind of value in telling quality. Um, but if it were purely not valuable in the foundational layer of it, then that lack of value would be an insufficient resource or an insufficient basis for its having value. The idea is that you can't get value purely from non-values is maybe the way to put it in a, in a slogan. You know, value derives from value. Um, and I was thinking again about examples of this. I mean, it's like if somebody has uh, lots and lots of wisdom, having lots and lots of wisdom, you might think, is a value entailing quality. It's, it's valuable mm -hmm. for you to have wisdom. Um, and now if, if let's say that you're wise about relationships, okay, then that's also value entailing quality and having wisdom about relationships also entails having wisdom about something. Now I know this is getting subtle and, and technical, but I think it's worth being careful about this to see what's going on here is that if you have two different properties, like having wisdom about something and having wisdom about relationships, both of those you might think are value entailing. But the value of having wisdom about something is explained or grounded in the value of having wisdom about relationships, or at least it could be. And so what I'm illustrating here is the idea that you can have valuable properties that are grounded in other valuable properties. And then this illustrates the general principle that in, in general, uh, valuable properties, if they have any grounds at all, are going to be grounded in other valuable properties. They're not going to bottom out in pure non-value. And so this would be a reason that you might have to think that the fundamental nature of fundamental reality then has some positive or um, positive aspect or some kind of value. Um, but then it would have that in a qualitative way, not in a quantitative way, because the fundamental nature is not um, quantitative and it, and it wouldn't be an arbitrarily limited value. And then at this point, you might think of the word supreme as what it means to have this fundamental value without limit. Uh, you might sort of define it this way. And, and let me just say, this is a, a, a place in the argument that I don't feel like I have crystal clarity on it. You know, I mean, the, I was thinking today as I was um, kind of preparing in my mind for our conversation, I was thinking about how valuable it is, I think, when people are working through something to also kind of highlight the places where they're not so sure, even in the process. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because I think otherwise what we can end up doing is we can only convey when we feel confident and then people don't get the wisdom for what to do when you don't feel confident. Like how, how do you think about things when you're not sure? And so one of the things that I'm not so sure of is whether those four attributes that I just listed, the attributes of the attributes um, are themselves a way of characterizing what it means to be supreme where, where that's how we can understand what a supreme nature is or whether in addition, we actually can have insight into a supreme nature kind of like directly. Mm -hmm. And just to draw this out just a little bit more, and then I'll, I'll be curious to see what you think of this. Um, one thing that I've wondered, in, and I've talked about this in my book, How Reason Can Lead to God, is if there's this attribute, which I call perfection, sometimes philosophers call this absolute perfection, which is something that we have an insight, a positive insight into, 
through the window of our concept of a perfect being. So we look through the window of our concept of a perfect being, and through that window, we see this nature, this perfection. And then this perfection actually has those four attributes that I just mentioned. It's qualitative. It's not quantitative. Um, it's not an arbitrary limit. Um, it's positive, okay? Both in the logical sense, so it's not a negation of something, as well as in the axiological sense, because it's value conferring. And, and it's it's value conferring in the highest way, um, because again, it's not arbitrarily limited. So it would sort of maybe even imply what some people call maximal greatness. Um, now, maybe that's going farther than we need to go for this argument, but at least that there is this idea of this perfect, purely positive nature. And if there is this purely positive nature, then that might then solve the problem of arbitrary limits uh, and irrelevant differences. The problem of arbitrary limits is that limits call for further explanation. The problem of, of irrelevant differences is that it seems like any other nature would have some kind of feature that seems to call for further explanation. It would still be like the other natures that have an explanation. So mm. to kind of summarize the idea is that, and I know, I know this is a lot, and I don't want to be overly triumphal about this at all. And I'm not just saying this because I feel like there's there's areas here to explore further and to get clearer. Um, and people watching this might hear some of this and might stimulate some ideas in your mind maybe first in the form of an objection or maybe in the form of clarifying something more. But what I would say is kind of the clearest to me is that if there's this foundational reality, it's got to be relevantly different from caused explained things. And if this fundamental reality has a supreme nature, then I think it would have a relevant difference from cause and explained things. The kind of thing that would be supreme is precisely the kind of thing that wouldn't depend on other things. It's the kind of thing then that can exist independently and fully be the ground of everything else. So mm. there you go. That's that's the complete form of the argument. Yeah, that's really helpful. And you, you were so immodest and so demanding, Josh, as you're pretending. By immodest, you mean <laughs> modest? <laughs> yeah, I'm totally I'm totally joking. Yeah. I'm just trying to. Oh, yeah, I, right. I was like, I appreciate your <laughs> I'm humility. I'm so arrogant in my presentation. No, because I, <laughs> yeah. I, keep, I keep learning new things and, and mm -hmm updating my mind on things. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's a matter of clarifying some things. And sometimes it's a matter of yeah. pulling some weeds out. And mm -hmm. so I don't want to move too quickly through this, but I do mm -hmm. think just from what I, when I've looked at this and really just thought about it, it does seem like we can see some things about mm -hmm. fundamental reality. Like fundamental reality is not fundamentally pink. Okay. This is yeah. colored pink, but I think we can see it's not colored pink. Mm -hmm. um, and not just because pink is the wrong color to produce everything else, because you might wonder, you know, maybe it has the resources to produce everything else and it's fundamentally pink, right? Yeah. But I think actually reason reveals that it wouldn't be fundamentally pink because that's not relevantly different from other colors. Why would pink be so special? <laughs> it has mm -hmm. to be the yeah. one color that is gets to be uncaused. I, I don't mm -hmm. think that that's the most plausible yeah. view. Yeah. I think that's helpful. So thank you, Josh. And this is why I love talking um, and listening to like things you do is because you, you come at it with a lot of humility and like thinking that you don't have all the answers. Um, so, and just trying to explore what we can. Um, so I have maybe like one kind of like clarification or question with regards to like that presentation. It's the yes. idea of like with the third and fourth things you talked about, about like the foundation being like purely positive and having like, like pure, like pure value or like positive value. Yes. I'd be wondering like what motivates like thinking that these things like would actually exist. Um, cause I think some people might say like, well, how could we like ascribe to something like being like purely positive? Like, does it even like hmm. make like a co coherent sense And the same thing with like value? Like, what does it mean to say that like 
the foundation has like pure value or something like that. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that, Josh. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you brought this up because I did want to address this concern about value, like why I think there even is value. And mm -hmm. I want to say two, two things about this um, briefly. So the first thing is, I think that it is possible to witness value right within your own states of consciousness. So I think of value in a kind of a minimal way. Sometimes people get caught in the weeds of debates over subjective versus objective value. And I think those words, subjective and objective, also kind of lead to complexities that distract the mind from something I think can actually be clearer, which is that when you look within, you can notice that some of your uh, emotional states are positive. They have a positive aspect that some of your other emotional states don't have. Like, so if you feel happy, peaceful, you feel love, you feel excitement, um, those have a kind of positive quality to them. If you feel um, maybe angry or you feel like you're in pain, um, those you might think lack the same kind of positive qualities as the first states that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, also, I think if you look within, I was actually just writing on, on this today. I've been working on my this chapter on uh, your value, part of my consciousness book. And value is something I think you can witness within your own consciousness, not just the value of experiences, but the value of yourself, the one who has those experiences. Like even if you're sad, you're having a negative experience, you still have value as a being, as a person. Um, in fact, I think this is why we can actually have compassion for somebody while they're feeling in negative states. We don't just think, oh, they're in negative states, so there's no value there. No, we think there is value there. We have compassion for you because you have value even while you're suffering. And so I think it is possible to witness value right within consciousness. And then we can sort of leave it as an open question, how we want to characterize that kind of value. Is it subjective? Is it, is it objective? What does that mean? Um, but for the purposes of this argument, I think we can just leave this open. It's, it's just real. It's something that you can witness. There's, there's a pot. I, I think of the value as um, pointing to the positive aspects or positive aspects are themselves examples of bits of value, if I could use that language. Um, and so, so this is the reason to think that there is some value. And then since I don't think that value can be derived solely from non-value, this is a reason that I would have to think that value is part of the fundamental layer of reality. That's one reason. Uh, a second reason is that I think the fundamental nature of reality has some valuable positive aspects, including the power to produce all value. Um, so that, that's one line. Now, some, some people watching this might think, well, I'm not so sure if there's really value. Um, that opens up a whole category of questions. And there's another way of thinking about this argument from arbitrary limits, where instead of running through value, we run through other attributes, like, for example, um, power. Uh, so I, I think that fundamental reality has some ability or power to be a foundation for other things. And then shaving away the arbitrary limits I'm going to argue that its uh, fundamental power is itself unlimited. Um, if it were limited, I would think it would need some sort of ability to make that limit, but then that means it has an ability prior to its abilities and that's circular. So, <laughs> so I think that it has some kind of foundational ability and then this foundational ability shaving off the arbitrary limits is going to be non-limited um, and, and therefore maximal. Uh, and then if it's maximal, I think it's going to include the kind of powers that would be included in maximal power which I think will include cognitive power, the power of a mind. So this is like another reason that I would have for thinking that fundamental reality has uh, the power of a mind and, and maybe then would have the value of a mind if you, if you want to go back to value. But we, we could even just lay, leave value aside and we could still arrive at something pretty interesting. 
And then, and if I could just say one more thing, I do mm-hmm. kind of even want to leave open. I, I said at the beginning that the argument from arbitrary limits, you could think of it as a tool for investigating reality. And so in a way, I kind of like, as people listen to this, I, I want to kind of leave the argument open in your hands so you can sort of think about, okay, what is sort of the least arbitrary description of fundamental reality that fits my own understanding of things? And so then you might be able to arrive at some conclusions, like that it's not a purple sphere or whatever. Um, and that leaves open what conclusions you might arrive at. But I do think that you can tease out value um, if you recognize the reality of value through consciousness, for example. Mm, that's super helpful. So thanks, Josh. Um, maybe one more thing that we could like talk about briefly, and then we can get sure. to like some of the objections Sounds and like, like questions. Um, it's the idea of like, we, so we talked, you've talked about like trying to map this idea, trying to get to a being that's like maybe like unlimited and like unlimited in value and supreme and things along these lines. Um, from there, like, how would you connect it? Like, like as Christians, obviously, like we believe that, like, in, like in God and the conscious mind that like creates mm-hmm. the universe. Like, is there is there anything further you do to try to connect those dots, or would you use other arguments, or like, where would you go from there? Thinking about um, that, Josh. Yeah, and I think it is helpful to sort of think of many pieces together. I mean, really, when you're thinking about a grand scale theory, a theory of sort of ultimate reality, you want your theory to fit everything else you think you know. You know, like. Mm-hmm. It needs to be able to fit with the rest of the world in our observations. And so um, I kind of like to divide the arguments into two types. One type of argument is an argument from the effects. So you look at the kinds of things you see in nature, um, consciousness. Well, I see consciousness within myself, uh, you know, complexity, design, uh, my power to reason, maybe a moral sense. You know, you just sort of list the features of reality and then you you think back to, okay, what kind of a reality could be an ultimate source of all those features? Mm-hmm. Um, another kind of strategy, which is what we're exploring here, is not to look so much at the effects, but instead just to look directly at the nature of the cause and think, okay, what kind of thing could be at the base? What could be ultimate? And if carving away arbitrary limits, together with recognizing some of its positive aspects, is going to lead us to a supremely positive fundamental reality, then you might derive some of the classic perfections. I mean, you might think that if it's supremely positive fundamental reality, well, then it would have, as I mentioned, the power of a mind. It would have the power to know things and to see things. Um, it would be purely good. Um, and you might think of this as, as kind of a deri- um, as a way of unpacking through conceptual analysis the concept of a purely positive non-arbitrarily limited. So it's non-arbitrarily limited plus has that value. So it's purely positive reality. Then you use reason to deduce the implications from there. Um, So I think there are a few different paths. I mean, I mentioned the path from power has supreme power, therefore the power to know if that's part of supreme power. And then there's the path through value has supreme value and therefore has the valuable feature of having a maximal mind. That'd be another path. So I think there are actually a few different paths to explore. Yeah. Yeah, that's super helpful. So thanks, Josh. I think it'd be good now to get into like some of the, like the objections and like questions um, looking at yeah. with regards to this topic. Um, so one of them I'd really like to get into is like the idea of the Trinity. Um, yes. So like as Christians, like we believe in like one God, these three persons. Um, and we run into this question of if we accept like the first premise of your argument that like limited things have explanations, like yes. how do we deal with like saying like the Trinity? Like surely you don't want to say like um, maybe God could have been like four persons or two persons or 148,000 persons or something like that. Um, so like, how would you like look at this idea of like maybe challenging the idea that like, um, like even for the Christian, like if we want to hold like good Christian theology, we're going to have like some sort of like 
brute limit that has like no further explanation. Yeah, good. So, I mean, on one level, I want to follow the argument where it leads me. So if the mm -hmm. argument leads me to shave off certain theories of God or the divine nature, then that's interesting all on, in its own right. Um, and, and I just, I want to underscore this because an argument doesn't fail just if it happens to be incompatible with certain other things that people believe. In fact, maybe the argument can help us see that maybe some of these other things that we might believe aren't true. Okay. So mm -hmm. that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is that um, the argument gives us a fundamental reality that doesn't have arbitrary limits. Okay. But it's part of the classic concept of a, a triune conception of God, as I understand it, that the triune nature of God is not thereby fundamental in the sense that there's no further explanation. In fact, mm -hmm. on some traditions, the idea is that um, God the Father is sort of a name for like the source, the original self consciousness uh, generates the Son in some way. There's a kind of eternal generation or an eternal dependence. And that would then lead to two. And then some say that the two generate the third. And so you have three. Um, there are different models of the Trinity. And I myself, when I think about the Trinity and I'm thinking about my argument, I'm just thinking about, okay, which models of the Trinity is my argument consistent with? And so mm -hmm. I would say that my argument is fully consistent with a kind of traditional classical account of the Trinity. It doesn't remove that, um, but it would remove other accounts of the Trinity. I mean, I remember kind of wondering about sort of the triune nature of God and thinking about like these three persons being fundamental bits of reality. And then out of those three fundamental bits of reality, maybe you derive the rest of God's nature. I remember thinking about this, this in graduate school. And I have to tell you that my argument convinces me that that model, that the fundamental nature of reality has these three fundamental bits is, is probably not the, the best model because then it would, it would make me wonder why three and not four, that would seem to call for further explanation. And so that's, that's my answer to that. In fact, I, I just, I think my argument can actually serve theology in this respect, not by saying that therefore God can't be, be triune, but rather by saying that any kind of diversity within God is, is whether in terms of properties or persons is going to be rooted in terms of a, a more basic qualitative explanation. I think what you're saying, Josh, because it's similar to like what I thought about this topic. So yeah. like thinking about like um, if like God is unlimited and like the foundation is unlimited, like what does that mean for the three persons? Mm -hmm. And it seems like 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 you emphasize, Josh, a lot of like traditional like Christian views of the Trinity allow for some sort of explanation for like why God is triune right. rather than like yes. um, like four or five persons or things like that. So then there's not really this problem here because we're just talking about like the foundational um, not saying the Trinity is in foundation, but just like the foundational layer of reality still can be without limits. And then we have this explanation for how we un understand there's like three divine persons. Um, yes. So, yeah. And if I could add something here, you don't have to see an explanation to have reason to think that there would be an explanation. I mean, somebody watching this might think that they have reason maybe from revelation to believe that God manifests in three persons, um, but maybe doesn't see how that could be explained further. But it won't, it won't follow that there couldn't be a further explanation. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is that sort of in that spirit of inclusivity, I mean, if, if it looks by your own light that um, not only you don't see how there could be an explanation, but that you do see that there couldn't be an explanation, well, then, I mean, the argument from arbitrary limits would, by your own lights, give you reason to think that God's relationship to personas won't be 
a matter of um, sort of a necessary grounding relationship. It, it would, and then in that case, be more like a contingent uh, manifestation relationship. And so, yeah, I mean, my argument just leaves all that open. I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to defend one view of the Trinity or another. I'm just trying to point out that the argument leaves open a range of options. I think that's so helpful just to mm -hmm. see that. Yeah, um, it does carve off some options that the fundamental characterization of the Trinity can't be fundamental. And that's good. That's a beautiful result. I think I think that serves us. Yeah, I like how we can say like the Trinity is still necessary um, in some sense, like and still hold on like to an argument from arbitrary limits. So we don't really have to like get rid of either of those commitments that which like, um, especially is important, like if you want to hold like Christian theology or something. So yeah, that's great, Josh. Thank you. So another objection I'd love to talk about is like the idea that um, well, explanation, well, let's talk about this one. Um, and that's God's decision to create a certain universe may seem arbitrary. Yeah. So we're thinking about like God uh, and looking at like, thinking about like what kind of universe he'd create. Um, and would that just be like some sort of like arbitrary decision? Like why did he choose this universe where we exist rather than some other one? Um, because yeah. it seems like then we'd have some sort of like arbitrary thing that exists without any further explanation. Um, obviously you could say like, Maybe it's contingent because God's causing it. So we have some explanation, but maybe it just seems like brute almost in a sense. Cause there's like not really a good reason for like God creating this universe as opposed mm -hmm. to like another one. So I'm curious. What yeah. You're there might be some open options there. Um, my view is that God's decision to create the world is motivated by positive qualities in, in particular love. I think that God loves to create and loves us and is motivated by the side of the value of us and the side of the value of creation. But maybe God's side of these valuable things uh, leaves open options of like, which way should things be created? It's like if you're making a picture, you could paint two different beautiful pictures are both beautiful. And maybe there's just really an open end. It's not like one is like more beautiful than the other. Maybe there's no way of comparing that. And so that will allow there to be a kind of freedom even for, for God in terms of how to create. But the creation then won't be arbitrary because it would be motivated by and explained in terms of these positive, um, the site of value. Um, and, and then the site of value in turn is grounded in terms of its more foundational nature of being supreme. And so seeing all, including all that is valuable. Maybe I've been thinking about this lately. It's like maybe what it sees first is itself, okay? And so this gives it sight of uh, a value. It gives it sight of knowledge of its own um, personhood. And that gives it sort of the resources in a sense to even understand like what persons are to then create others in its own image. Um, you know, and, and there's different ways you could maybe spell that out, but, you know, cause I'm not saying this takes place across time. Maybe mm -hmm. it's, it's um, instant it's, but it takes place in a sort of explanatory chain. Um, or maybe it does take place across time. You know, my argument leaves that open. But I would say my own view is just that all of God's acts will have a further explanation in terms of its nature, in terms of its site of value. It's just that, and here's the important point, it's just that its site of value may not be a deterministic explanation. So when mm -hmm. I say there are no arbitrary limits, I'm not saying that um, limits can only have deterministic explanations. Maybe there could be certain limits and boundaries and configurations that are non-deterministically explained by prior states. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I'm tracking with you because it's yeah. similar. So like, I think about this as like, so like God's creation of the universe, maybe there is like no further explanation. Um, it's indeterministic and God just had this choice and this is what he chose. Um, 
it seems like to me that's still like the better option when we're looking at like saying like compared to saying well there's just like a foundational layer that's arbitrary limited and there's no further explanation um because at least like our explanation or like the theistic one would still be like have a contingent like I don't. I don't want to say bruteness, but like a contingent, like indeterministic, like factor compared. Yeah, there's to a difference between a, a brute, unexplained contingency, mm-hmm. and a non-deterministically explained contingency. Those are yeah. so different. The non-deterministically explained contingency is explained. Mm-hmm. It's just the explanation relation is not a necessitating relation. And I think this mm-hmm. is actually part of our own ordinary experience. We experience ourselves doing things for reasons and those reasons motivate and explain our actions. Even if they don't force us, you know, if I, if I get a drink of water and Rachel's like, why did you do that? I'm like, well, I was thirsty. That's why I did that. She's not going to say, well, Josh, it was logically possible that you were thirsty and you still don't do that. No, she's going to say, okay, that is an explanation of why you did that. Even if it's not deterministic. Mm-hmm. And so that's very, very different than I just did that. And there was nothing behind that at all. Not a, mm-hmm. not a determinist explanation, not even a non-determinist explanation. Um, that That's another kind of thing entirely. So I'm totally with you there that the argument is removing brute contingencies, brute facts, brute states, like as far as we can. And if mm-hmm. there's a place where it has to be brute and there's no further possible explanation, well, then great. We've arrived at fundamental reality, right? <laughs> so, yeah. That's great. So would you be like content then, Josh, with saying like, well, like maybe God um, could have created a different world and, you know, like there's just like no further explanation for like why it is, or do you think we could go further? And obviously I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole of like yeah. why God created this world, but what are you thinking here? That that God could not have created a different world? Is that the question? Yeah. It's so, like thinking yeah. about like um, looking at like God's choice, like is it arbitrary? Like could have God created a different world? Um, and like, if so, like could we I have- think probably, yeah. I think there's, there's room- uh, my wife and I, and I don't want to chase this too far, but my wife and I were also kind of talking about a, a model from what we called axioms of consciousness. So we imagine maybe God has some axioms of consciousness that apply to himself. And what we notice is that even those axioms leave open options for the mm-hmm. fundamental reality. Um, that that's that makes sense. You know, if if somebody convinced me that there was only one path, you know, then... Um, then I would still think that everything has an explanation down to the fundamental reality. But yeah, but my, my view is that, um, is that reality leaves things open. I think that's, that's right. Yeah. Mm, that's great. So God has a choice. Yeah. Maybe one more objection we'll explore Josh before we wrap sure. up is this idea of like, well, maybe just like explanation ends at necessary things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know people like Oppie have talked a lot about this. Like when we get to like something that's necessary, well, there just is no further explanation. So maybe there is like an arbitrary limit. Maybe it's just like seven particles or a nice like yeah. donut sized like multiverse or something like that. And that's yeah. just the way it is. And it's necessary. Yeah. So we just don't, we don't need a further explanation. So I'm curious what you think here. Yeah, it could be a donut or it could be a turtle. I mean, really that multiverse could <laughs> be pretty cool. Like a turtle. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I actually first encountered this question, this objection from Michael Tooley when I was in graduate school and I was sharing with him some ideas that I was having on this argument. And he brought this up. He said, well, you know, it looks to me, Josh, that numbers as abstract entities would have limits. I think he used the number eight. He said it's divisible by two, like three times over. And that that divisible by two, by, by three times over, that's, that's a limit. That's a quantitative property. And so, um, you know, by your argument, it should have some sort of cause. But if the numbers are abstract and necessarily existing entities, they have no cause. 
And so therefore that would be an exception to my principle. And as I thought about this, there's a few things that I, I could say. Um, the modest thing that I'd wanna say is that even if it doesn't have a cause, it's still, I think, gonna have a further explanation in terms of more basic principles. I mean, e even in mathematics, I think that it's not just sort of arbitrary why the numbers are what they are. I think the numbers are what they are in virtue of more basic principles of numbers. Mm -hmm. And then those more basic principles of numbers are themselves grounded, I think, in terms of the foundational reality. The foundational reality is gonna ground all the basic principles. Like the reason that there are even are principles is in terms of a foundational reality. Or if the basic principles are themselves foundational and ungrounded, okay, well, as long as their attributes meet the four criteria, you know, they're qualitative and not quantitative, um, not arbitrarily limited, et cetera, et cetera, then maybe the total of the necessary realm, which includes the total of the abstract principles and the total of the causal powers and the to all of it in total is supreme. So you could think of the supreme nature is, is coloring in the totality of whatever is fundamental. And that will kind of leave open in a way, whether it's part of the fundamental reality that there are mathematical principles. But I don't think that quantities are gonna be fundamental for the, for the reasons I've given. You know, Quantities are gonna depend on prior states and prior conditions. Um, mm -hmm. So that's what I would say now. Now, I, I didn't get back to Thule. I mean, that was back in graduate school and I've been thinking about it since. So I don't know kind of what he would say about that, but I have had conversations with others about this and it seems like this does help. It does push forward the conversation um, because it shows how even if there is a kind of necessary layer to reality, still that doesn't thereby show that there can be no further explanation. And if we want to sort of trace explanations as far as we can, then we can, I think, explain necessary numbers and necessary principles in terms of more basic axioms and more basic structures. I mean, because otherwise, it is kind of mysterious. I mean, something I've been thinking a lot about is like, why does fundamental reality have the attributes that it has? If it has some positive attributes of the power to produce things, the power to know things, if it has some of these attributes, why does it have those positive attributes? And if we say, well, it's absolutely perfect, that would kind of explain why all of its identifiable attributes are positive. If it's absolutely perfect, mm -hmm. that predicts that all of its attributes would be positive. Um, it'd be sort of weird if like there was the number one, the number two, the number four, but the number three was like missing. That would be sort of weird, right? It's like, well, why would that be weird? Well, it'd be weird because it seems like, it. it it wouldn't help if you said, oh, well, it's just necessarily missing. That doesn't explain, like, I hope this is getting clear. It's like merely saying it's necessary doesn't give you that deeper explanation. If you say, well, number three is just necessarily missing. There's a hole in the number line and it's just necessary. It's like putting aside the fact that um, you might think it's not necessary that it's missing. Just put that aside for the moment. It seems like all independent of that, there's just something arbitrary about there being a hole in the number line. It would be simpler and it would be a deeper explanation if instead all the numbers um, have a further explanation instead of yeah. saying that, well, some of them do, some of them don't, or even that none of them do. Well, if none of them do, then we're back to filling out the foundation in terms of all of the necessary things together that adds up to a supreme nature. So that's a lie. I said probably more than what you're asking for, but um, it's because I've been thinking a lot about that.
And there's a lot of yeah. different things that you can say about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate your, your thoughts, Josh. And there's a lot there and really grateful yeah. for it. So maybe um, one thing to wrap up here, which is like off script, uh, but I think it might be helpful like with wrapping things up here okay. is I'd be curious because it seems like, like, and you're thinking you're very intentional about like finding time to like think and ponder these things. Yes. Um, so I'd be curious, maybe you could share a little bit about like, what is like your daily, like, do you have like a daily routine or like things you do to really like make sure you're intentional about having time to like think and like ponder these things? Cause it seems like I'm sure you're a pretty busy guy and all of us Americans love to talk yeah. about how busy we are. So maybe talk a little bit about like what you're thinking here and how you're intentional about thinking about stuff like this. I think, yeah, thank you. Yeah. I think my interest makes me sort of naturally wanting to think about these things. So sometimes um, when I have our time sleeping, I'll give myself a philosophy problem to work on. And that helps me. It's like kind of therapeutic. I know that may sound weird, but um, I do that. And then also I often just wake up in the morning with like morning thoughts. So mm -hmm. when I'm driving to work, I'm kind of just working on my morning thoughts. Um, when I'm working out today, I was working out and I was again, kind of thinking about this argument from arbitrary limits and kind of tracing out some new, new ideas and turning some ideas over my mind. So it it's funny because in a way, it's almost like not intentional. <laughs> I'd have to be intentional to not be thinking about these things. It, mm -hmm. It's more just like I'm drawn to it. I'm mm -hmm. just drawn to it. It's just so interesting. And I I find it like if I'm waiting in line at a store, I'll be just kind of turning things over my mind. It's it's kind of fun for me. It's mm -hmm. just what I like to do. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. It's so fun. And yeah. I don't think I definitely like don't have that same like level as you do in terms of thinking about it but even like today like someone was like working on a math problem on the board and yeah. one of my classes and i was like what is math like i was just thinking about it like i'm sure like yeah. no one else, i was like no one else in the room is probably thinking about this but like, <laughs> I know. like what is math and how is this like working on the board um so i, I appreciate know. you sharing a little bit about like your curiosity and maybe you want to yeah. like explain what math is in one minute so and just like take care of that business uh, before we wrap up yeah 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 math, math <laughs> is windows into the abstract uh, <laughs> principles of reality well no i had that same experience that you had like in class or talk about these math equations and it's like oh the math equations are true today and tomorrow mm -hmm. and they're true across the united states true across the world it's like why what what are they talking about on the board there well it's like yeah. bits that are representing this other reality this abstract reality and that abstract reality is real mm -hmm. it's real you can see it right in your mind you can represent it on paper, represent it on the chalkboard. Um, but yeah, mathematical truths correspond with a mathematical landscape or mathematical principles. Um, yeah. So that's my view. Yeah, well, that's super cool. And yeah. unfortunately, we'll leave that for another day. But Josh, um, thank you so much for coming on today. Is there any like okay. last thoughts or things you want to share before we wrap up here? Yeah, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. And, and I, I know you were just kind of joking about that math question, and I still just wanted to answer it. But um, just because it's just, it's just fun to talk with you about these things. And so I just really appreciate our time together and, um, yeah, people can find my work at Joshua You can get free resources there. So I hope that this conversation will serve you. Thank you. Yeah. I hope it served everyone listening as well. If you're new, I always encourage you to like subscribe, leave a like and all that fun stuff. So you can check out our content as well. Um, if you value our work, you can have a patron at patreon.com. But Josh, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate your time. It's been such a great conversation and I really enjoyed this. And I'm sure everyone that's listening too as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you everyone for tuning in. We hope you have a good one and God bless. We'll see you next time.